You're listening to a CFCC audio podcast. For news and service times, visit www.cfccnet.org. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We are glad to see that you passed the test on how to operate the clocks in your house. Well done. Thank you for being here this morning. Before we dive into the rest of the announcements, we have a living water mission trip coming up. The impact that a living water well has on the community that receives it completely transform it. It affects more than just what they drink. It affects every part of the lives of the people that live there. And if you haven't been on a living water trip, I highly recommend it. If you want to know more, there are lots of people in the church that have been on one that would love to talk to you. I'm one of them. Happy to talk to you and answer questions. You can talk to Bob Boozer. You can talk to Doris Scott. We would love to see you sign up for one of these trips. And there's information about the upcoming one in your bulletin. We have a couple other announcements in the bulletin. The first is that Wednesday, March 20th is going to be a busy night on the campus here. Wednesday, March 20th, we have our first VBS work night of the year. VBS is going to be earlier this year. It's going to be in June. And so we are starting those weekly Wednesday night work times where we prepare the set decorations and get everything ready. So we'd love to have you join us for that. We also have that same night, a night of prayer for the student discipleship minister search. Uh, We will have... Uh, an opportunity for you to join with other people in the church to pray for whoever is going to join our church in that capacity. Um, so make plans to be here on that night and, and join us in one of those endeavors. We also want to say that we hope you have an amazing spring break. Most of you that have kids are there on spring break this week. And to kind of celebrate the end of that, next week, Engaged Student Discipleship is hosting another Oh What a Night at Matsky Park. Um, if you've been to them before, they're really fun. It'll be next week, Sunday night at 5 p.m. Uh, grab a picnic lunch, stop by a drive through The students will probably go to Whataburger. That's why it's all What a Night. They're obsessed. And, and join us at Matsky Park. We hang out, we talk, impromptu games of football break out and frisbee, and, and it's just a really good evening spent together. We hope to see you there. Good morning. My name is David Durrett. I'm uh, going to bring the offering devotion to you. I want to real briefly talk to you about uh, tithes and offerings. Um, I'm a part of our Friday morning men's group. I'm going to give a quick plug for that. For any of you men that are looking for a group from 6.30 to 7.30 on Friday mornings, we have some really good discussions. One of those discussions this last Friday morning was on the book of Mark. And uh, we were talking about the cost the cost of following Christ and exactly what that means. I want to read to you Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now that brief scripture just talks about him calling them and them following. And it really doesn't go into the detail, in my mind, of probably what was going through their mind, right? 
They had jobs, they had families, they had commitments, they had things going on. And Christ simply said, follow me. And they left it all, and they went to follow after him. One of the things they had to have in order to do that was they had to have trust, right? They had to trust that if they followed, that they were doing the right thing. And so Malachi goes on further to talk about a little bit of trust. And this is kind of one of the old standard tithing scriptures that we talk about. But when I read this this morning to you, I want you to think for just a minute about trust, right? He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. See if you can trust me, right? Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And I know money to us, right, is one of the most important things. It's our security for some of us, right? It's what we depend on. It's what we count on. It's what pays our bills. And so for us to have trust that the Lord will be faithful with the tithes and offerings that we give him takes faith. And so my prayer for our church this morning is that we will fully and totally trust in Christ, that we will trust God to honor his word. And he's never let us down, right? He's honored his word every time. And so I challenge you this morning, if you're a young believer, if you've never tithed before, if you've never given an offering, um, take that step of faith. Trust, uh, give, and see that the Lord returns a blessing to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. And Father, if that you are faithful and that you are a God we can trust fully and totally. So Father, we just ask this morning that you would bless these tithes and these offerings, that you would use them for the furthering of your kingdom, and that you would bless us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for gathering your people, your sons and your daughters, these brothers and sisters bound by the blood of Jesus. And though we may not feel worthy, God, though we may feel covered in sin and shame by the blood of Jesus, you have washed us clean. And so may we live in that victory here today. May we live as freed people, though humble and, and, and bowing before you, God, may we live victorious in Jesus. We thank you for the grace and mercy that we find here this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to wash us with your grace, that your spirit would be upon your people here today as we hear your word, as we consider its implications for our lives. And, and Lord, how you're you're making us more like Jesus. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us. And we have 10,000 reasons or more, Lord, to praise you. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Oh, some of you are like, whoa, time change. Don't talk too loud this morning. I have to say, I feel a little freedom this morning. Speaking of freedom in Jesus, I feel freedom this morning that if any of you fall asleep while I'm preaching that I have a really good excuse in my mind, right? I feel like, you know, uh, I can just sort of excuse it as the time change. So if you fall asleep next week when Dale's preaching, sorry, Dale, that's just on you, man. That's, that's on you. I'm going to do my best to keep you awake this morning. No promises. Um, this is probably a really, really bad decision here today to begin the Sunday of spring forward 
uh, like this, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and I'm going to start with a history lesson. Are you excited? Yes. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Is it okay if I walk through a little history with you here this morning as, as we begin? Okay, I want to I take you back about 10,000 years, okay? It's going to be a long sermon. I'm just going to, you know, just brace yourself. About 10,000 years ago in the Libyan desert, there was a discovery made of a substance that had never been seen before, that had never been known to man, that was discovered for the very first time that would go on to change civilization forever. This is no, no exaggeration. Scientists believe that millions of years ago, this substance was formed. Not sure how, but they know that it was hot there in the Libyan desert, maybe a thousand degrees or more. And what happened in the Libyan sand was those little, little grains of silica began to fuse together because of the heat. And after time, they began to cool. And when they did, they created a substance that existed somewhere between solid and liquid, a substance that we know as glass. 10,000 years ago, someone stumbled into this Libyan desert and saw these fragments of this substance that had survived all of those years. And they were so astonished by it, they were so amazed by it that they took it with them and it started to make its way around the known world in marketplaces all over the place. People were amazed by the substance, curious about it, what it was, until it finally made its way into a brooch uh, carved as a scarab beetle. And it stayed in this brooch in this place for about 4,000 years undisturbed until in 1922, archaeologists discovered it for the very first time in the tomb of a pharaoh named King Tut. Now this glass that we, we, we see here is so commonplace. We see it every day. I mean, you've, you've probably got some in your hand right now. You've got some on your eyes, There's, right? It's so commonplace. We don't, we underestimate what a cornerstone of civilization this is. The Roman Empire, were, they, they were the first to actually use glass to create windows to let light in to their otherwise gloomy and dark dwellings that they lived in. Uh, in the 12th century, monasteries, uh, these monks would gather, uh, um, you know, around candlelight over these religious manuscripts. And because they couldn't see, they used chunks of curved glass to magnify the texts that they were reading. Uh, around this time, we're not exactly sure, uh, you know, when or where, but around this time in northern Italy, glassmakers who who were sort of sort of making a, a living for themselves were starting to shape this glass in convex um, round pieces, right? And they put frames around these convex glass pieces and put them side to side and created the very first spectacles. You've got them on your face, many of you right now. They called these 
they call these uh, spectacles, I'm going to see if I can get this right, roidi da agli, roidi da agli, which was Italian meaning discs for the eyes. They should have called them roidi, roidi da ugly. Can you imagine wearing those on your face right now? Probably not going to find those at America's Best this week on sale. Raidi da ugly meant discs for the eyes. Now check this out. So they resembled, because of their curved shape, they resembled lentil beans. And because the Latin word for lentil is lentis, we get the word lenses. Right? In 1590, in the the Netherlands, in a town called Middleburg, a man named uh, Hans and his son Zacharias began lining these curved convex discs up, not side by side though. For the first time, they began stacking these lenses, thereby magnifying what they were observing and created in 1590, the very first microscope. Microscopes would go on to revolutionize science and hygiene and health as we know it. Now, it took a while for the microscope to be invented, but it was only about 18 years later that another Dutch lens maker would file a patent for the telescope. That's the first microscope there. But about 18 years later, a file would be made for, a patent would be filed for the first telescope. And just two years later, in 1610, Galileo used the telescope to observe that moons were orbiting Jupiter, challenging the paradigm that all heavenly bodies orbited around the earth. The glass lens changed everything. And it goes further and further beyond that. I mean, it's amazing how this glass has sort of penetrated our world. Just see some pictures here. I mean, some things that we don't even consider that are so commonplace. Think about how different it would be if we didn't have glass. Think about how different our cities would look. Um, we We wouldn't have cameras. We wouldn't have film. We wouldn't have fiber optic cable. We wouldn't have... Uh, uh, fiberglass, any of these things if we didn't have glass. We wouldn't, without the evidence, we wouldn't believe that there were invisible colonies of bacteria and viruses that spread disease. We wouldn't believe in the grandeur or understand even just in part the grandeur of the universe if it weren't for glass, if it weren't for these lenses that were created. The lens changed how we see the world. But there's another lens that I wanna talk to you about this morning. And this lens has that same power to alter the way that you see things. Like the glass lens, there's, there's another lens from which you view things. And it's at the core of your beliefs. It's at the very foundation of your life, and it's how you make sense of life and the world, and this lens is what I want to call here today your worldview, your worldview, the way that you see things. Your worldview 
Maybe you've never considered this before. Maybe you've heard the term, but your worldview is, it's any ideology, it's any philosophy, it's any theology that provides an approach to understanding God, an approach to understanding the world, and an approach to understanding how you relate to those two things. It's typically revealed by uh, a, a, a fundamental question, an answer to a fundamental question in your life. How you understand your purpose. Things like, who am I? And where did I come from? Is this all there is? The answer to these questions shapes the way that you live. It shapes the way you see the world. It shapes everything about you. But because everyone has different answers to these questions, who am I, where do I come from, what's my purpose in the world, everybody, because everybody has different answers, not everyone has the same worldview, right? And so you may grow up in, in a household with someone who you have the same opportunities, you had the same sort of uh, um, schooling, you had all these different kinds of things, but you have completely different worldviews. You may grow up in the same neighborhood with somebody. You may have known somebody since they were a child, but when you approach a fundamental question like this, when you approach questions about life, when you approach things like, where did we come from? You find that you confront these worldviews, and if you ever have... You, you know how frustrating it is when, when, you, when two people from opposing worldviews confront one another on one of these questions and you can be thinking, how can this person see this topic? How can they see this issue so differently than I can? Are they even living in the same reality? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe they see the world from a different worldview. And so what do you do when this happens? This happens increasingly more and more and more in our culture. And what do you do when this happens? Do you shut that person off? Do you uh, just assume they're ignorant and they don't understand, they don't know? Do you avoid them altogether? Do you sort of insulate yourself with other people who have the same worldview as you do? Do you have contempt for that person? What do you do? How do you engage this person? Do you, do you just argue your case louder and louder and more passionately to, to hopefully convince them? How do you engage these people? And is, are these the ways, are these ways the only ways in which you do it? Or is there another way? I want to turn your attention this morning to um, Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas, as you're turning there, Sort of a lot of ground to cover, and so I'm going to sort of summarize a portion of it for you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy have been traveling throughout the region. They have been taking the gospel to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews who live there in those, that region, to Macedonia, to Thessalonica, to Berea, Berea, and all of these different places. And as they have done this, they have pro- been proclaiming the gospel and more and more people have been coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this enraged the Jews, the Jewish leaders at the time. And they were so enraged, 
chapter 17 tells us that the, the Jewish leaders actually organized a mob of people. They stirred up a mob of people to go after Paul and Silas and Timothy and capture them, to, 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 to put them to death, not just to capture them. They wanted this to end. And at, at one point, we see that they go after Paul and Silas and Timothy, but when they get to where they think that they are, Paul, Silas, and Timothy have left, they find a man named Jason who had been housing them, and they drag Jason before the authorities, and they say, these men have turned the world upside down, and they have now come here also. And they're claiming that there's another king besides Caesar. They accuse Paul, Silas, and Timothy and all these other believers of treason against Caesar, treason against the Roman Empire. And if there's anything you know about the Roman Empire, it's that that kind of accusation never ended well for the person who was accused. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they book it. They get out of there as fast as they can. And they move on to another place. But as more and more believers come to faith, the Jewish leaders hear about it and they follow them there and they try and capture them there. Their lives are in danger, so they move on. This keeps happening over and over again until Silas and Timothy go to Paul and they go, look, Paul, you gotta get out of here, man. You gotta, you, this, is, this is not gonna end well for us and all that we're working for is going to be put to an end unless you get on a boat and you leave. And so Silas and Timothy wave to Paul as he gets on a boat and he travels to the city of Athens. And so there in Athens, Paul finds himself for the very, very first time in the cultural capital of the world. Athens, not as prominent in power as it had been, but still a very, very influential city. And there Paul is walking the streets, wandering around, waiting for his friends, Silas and Timothy, to show up. And Athens, you probably know a lot about it from from school, but just to remind you, this was the home of pagan Greek philosophy. Uh, Politically, the citizens there had developed the very first democracy, uh, a city-state run by elected officials who were accountable to the people, Hippocrates, who was a fifth century Athenian, has been called the father of Western medicine. Doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, right, when they graduate from medical school. Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, taught Plato, who later taught Aristotle. Athens boasted important figures in almost every category of civilization. And a lot more really important people that I can't even begin to pronounce. And all of these different people had a completely different worldview than Paul did. And so there's something that we can learn from from this story, how Paul engaged the people of this culture. But to do so this morning, I want to focus on, rather than just sort of like going through the whole text, I want to focus not just on his visit to Athens, but I want to focus on what Paul saw, what he felt while he was there, and what he said. So I recently had the, the opportunity to, uh, to spend a day in Rome. I was uh, on a trip with some folks from CFCC to, to um, work with some African refugees in Sicily, in Catania there, who had traveled over the Mediterranean Sea. And on our way out, 
of Sicily. We stopped in Rome and spent a day. Uh, and if you, you know anything from history about Rome, spending a day in Rome is a tall order if you want to see stuff, right? So, uh, so I got online and started looking around, and my sister has actually been to Rome several times. And so I called her up and I said, hey, what do you think? I've got about a day. I've got about maybe a day and a half in Rome. What should I see first? And her first response to me was, okay, uh, a day, a day and a half. What kind of Rome do you want to see? Do you want to see ancient Rome? Do you want to see art Rome? Do you want to see food Rome? Do you want to see Christian Rome? Uh, what kind of Rome do you, do you want to see? Uh, I was sort of overwhelmed and, and really didn't even know where to start. So Paul here, as a kid, he'd heard about Athens. He had heard about the influence of philosophy and architecture and art and all of these things. But when he walked the streets, it wasn't the history that struck him. It wasn't the art that struck him. It wasn't the beauty of Athens that struck him. It says this in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He looked upon the city and the the words there imply that the city was was smothered in idols. There there are people that say that it was easier to find a god in Athens than, uh, than it was to find a, a believer in God in Athens because there were just so many of these idols all over the place. This city was wholly given to, was smothered in idolatry and Paul has a Christian worldview that he's looking through. He's got a lens that's different from the people who live there and what he sees is idolatry that's prevalent everywhere. Underneath sin problems, underneath relational problems, underneath intellectual problems is another kind of problem. It's the problem of idolatry. It's a, it's a worship problem. The root under all of those things is that our hearts are directed at the wrong things. And in this case, it was these carved images that were all over the city. Martin Luther says that the, uh, the worship problem, idolatry, is so fundamental. It's actually the first commandment that God gives us is that you should have no other gods before me. And Martin Luther said, if you get that right, all of the other things will fall into place because that is essential to, to our hearts following God. And so when a person, person becomes a Christian, when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, the way that person sees the world changes. You now see through a Christian lens because embedded within the story of the Bible is a set of theological beliefs about God, about creation, about humanity, about sin, about redemption. And these beliefs along with scripture storyline shape the way that Christ followers view the world. And we as Christians enjoy many of the same things that the world does, but we listen to music differently. We see movies differently. We see art differently. 
We see ethnicity differently. We see injustice differently. We see money differently. We see the world through a different kind of lens. We enjoy the same kinds of things that the world does, but we see the world differently because we filter everything through a Christ-centered worldview. And Paul's response here to what he saw in Athens as he wandered these streets should make us long to see our neighbors, to see our coworkers, to see our nations and, and the idolatry that exists within it. Because we too live in a city smothered in idolatry. We too live in a, in a world that's wholly given to idolatry. And as Christians, we bear the responsibility. We bear the responsibility as believers in Jesus to destroy the idolatry in our own lives, to, to dismantle it, but also to lovingly, patiently point it out in our culture and speak truth into people's lives. People desperately need the the God who made them. They don't need these carved images. They don't need money. They don't need need fame. They don't need uh, importance. They don't need pride. They don't need a career. They don't need these things to satisfy them. They need Jesus. And so first and foremost, Paul saw through his Christian worldview, through this lens, he saw the idolatry that existed in the people around him. Now, what did he feel as he, as he saw those things? The scripture tells us right here that, that same verse. A Greek word is difficult to translate, but the word provoked, it actually implies like a muscle spasm, like a seizure. Um, I think the NIV says that he was distressed. The idea here is that there was like a physical response to the idolatry that he saw in the world around him. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse seven, it says, remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. The Lord is talking about their rebellion and talking about how he was was moved uh, physically almost by their idolatry. It's not, but it's not just an anger. It's not just that he was angry and mad. He also, there's, there's the idea that it's sort of mixed with compassion. It's mixed with with love for these people, wanting to see them move beyond this. And so Paul was angered by their misplaced worship, but he was also filled with compassion for them. And so becoming a Christian entails not only the different way to see things, but a different way to feel things. And it impacted Paul so much that it led him to engage these Athenian people with the gospel. And so it says in verse 17, uh, we're only two verses in, I told you this is going to be a long passage. Uh, In verse 17, it says that 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout people and the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Seeing the people around us searching for something to satisfy the desires of their heart should move us beyond compassion. It should move us in action. It should move us to, 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 to speak truth into their lives. It should move us to engage them in a Christ-like way. And if you don't think it's your job to do that, you think, oh, yeah, you know, that's not really my thing. Maybe that's, that's for the, the, someone else. Maybe that's someone else's job to do. Whose is it? Is the question. You say it's the church. Well, we are the church. And I'm not talking about calling out judgment on people around us. I'm talking about loving them so much that you're willing to be patient with them, to hear them. Paul didn't, it, 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 it doesn't say that he just, he, he walloped them with judgment and truth. It says that he reasoned with them, that he listened to them, he heard them, he was present with them. And when the time was right, he engaged them with truth. Our lives, here's the thing, our lives should reflect both gentleness and boldness. We, we can't just expect someone, if we just love them, love them, love them to find their way to Jesus, if we never speak truth in their lives, there's going to be a moment where God opens up an opportunity for you to speak truth in their lives. And so we have to be available to that moment. Tim Keller says that some people are good at the ministry of truth, on the other hand, but they're terrible at the ministry of tears. <laughs> they're good at speaking truth. They're good at walloping somebody on top of the head. They're good at it, it, it judging someone and saying, you're doing this wrong, but they're terrible at sitting with someone and being patient and loving them and grieving with them. The person who did this perfectly was Jesus. Not only did Jesus rebuke people, he turned the tables over in the temple, the tables of the merchant, but he also grieved with people. Isaiah 53 verse three says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so he rebuked people boldly, but he was also gentle. And so how can you engage the people around you who have a different worldview than you have? How can you effectively engage the people in your marketplace that you encounter on a day-to-day basis, you need the same kind of commitment to gentleness and boldness. You need to love them. Don't wallop them. Don't come down with a hammer of judgment, but love them and be gentle with them. Listen to them. Be present with them. Maybe the reason that they're so stiff-arming Christianity and Christ followers is they never had a follower of Jesus be present with them and understand their worldview, understand where they're coming from. And when the moment is right, when the moment is right, be prepared to speak truth in their lives. Some of us are really, really good at talking. We're really, really great at just filling in the silence. 
But maybe God is just calling you to be present and to listen and to wait for that moment to speak truth in their lives. And so when that happens, when that moment arises, when it's time for us to speak, what do we say? What do we say in that moment? Well, what did Paul say? We saw here in the scripture what he saw as he wandered the streets. He saw the sin. He saw the need. And he was more than just sort of like seeing it and noticing it. He was moved by it. He felt like a physical reaction to what he saw that moved him beyond his complacency. And it moved him to start speaking truth. And what we find in this passage here is that, that Paul, though his message was always the same, though the gospel that was presented was always the same and is still the same to this day, he spoke to different groups of people. He spoke to the Jews in the synagogue, it said, we just, just read. They reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. And so these obviously are people who know the scriptures. These are people who know the Old Testament. And so surely he referenced scripture that they knew and sort of revealed Jesus to them. But then he goes into the marketplace and he's with the Greek philosophers there who likely know very little about scripture. And so what does he do? He begins to use their own philosophy to sort of point them to the gospel of Jesus. He uses the culture around them to point them to Jesus. It says in verse 19 that as as he did this, it made them curious. They were really curious to know, like these Athenians were really open to the gospel. These people who had a completely different worldview, this is something for us to keep in mind that we think, oh, this person has a completely different worldview. They're not open to to my worldview. They're not open to the the truth of scripture. These Athenians were actually kind of open to this. They were very curious. They didn't, didn't say that they all began to follow Jesus, but they were at least curious to find out more. The gospel was being sort of planted in their hearts. And it says in verse 19, they took him, Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. This is completely outside of the lens that I see the world but I'm curious about it. I want to hear about it. And we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So check this out. This is a place that Paul has known about his whole life. He's there finally as an older man. He's a scholar and an academic, and um, uh, he, he understands philosophy, has probably great respect for the place that he's at and the people that he's with. And he's there by himself. He sees this need He engages the people and suddenly it opens up an opportunity for him to speak at the world famous council of Athens. The Areopagus was the highest court in the land. Some some believe it was actually on an elevated hill. The highest point in the city is actually where he spoke here. And so Paul, this Jewish foreigner who has a completely different worldview, suddenly has this opportunity to speak on this formal platform where these Athenians debate and they settle all kinds of disputes. And so I can imagine him standing there with all these people sort of taking in the moment. This is the greatest opportunity in all of Paul's ministry here 
to, to speak the gospel in this place, on this grand forum. So I imagine him looking at these people surrounded by these idols. He probably takes a breath and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I see the idols all around for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. (sighs) Chills, man. The God who Paul proclaims to the Athenians is not just another option for their worship. This is not a God that's content to be counted among the many. This is the God that you've been searching for. This God I proclaim is the God that you've been looking for. The one that, 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 you, that will satisfy the desires of your heart. The one who made you. And Paul begins to, to sort of unfurl the scriptures in front of them. He eases them into it again. He doesn't just like crush them. He eases them into this truth, beginning by telling them how they were created the creation account, and that God is our sustainer, that he's our ruler, that he provides for us in all of these ways, that he is knowable through his son, Jesus Christ, and that he is the father of humanity. He's a God who's not, stands from afar like some of these stoic and Epicurean philosophers believe that that he was a, a God who just sort of wound the clock and then backed off and it didn't engage with us. No, God is knowable, and you can know him through the person of Jesus Christ. This is the one that you've been looking for, and you just so happen to be crying out for it by inscribing it in marble out here, and I want to point it out to you right here. This is the one that you've been looking for, and he's also the judge of all mankind, but he's not just the judge. He didn't just push our sin out in front of us for us to wallow in it. He's also our rescuer. And he tells them, Paul does, about the resurrection of the dead. Telling them about this Jesus that they've never heard of. And what was the result? I gotta be honest, we understand that that Paul through his, some of his writings in Thessalonians was a little discouraged by what happened there in Athens. They didn't have throngs of people come to know Jesus like he has in other places in the world. But we do know that there were a couple of prominent Athenians who came to know Jesus, who accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who changed their worldview and went on to be church leaders One of them became the first bishop of Athens, a prominent, influential leader who who knows how many people came to faith through his ministry in the church. But Paul was faithful to what God had called him to do. Paul was obedient to what God had called him to do. Paul was available to what God was calling him to do and engaged those people. And so I wanna ask you this morning, sort of as we close 
as you walk through your marketplace, wherever that is for you. That may be a real marketplace. It may be through the aisleways between your cubicles. It may be in your home with your family. Through what lens are you seeing the world? Through what perspective are you seeing the world? Let me ask you this. Do you feel for the people around you? When you see them, are you moved in any way for them on their behalf? Or you just pass by these faces? Alan Alda, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the famous actor on MASH, right? He's, he's actually written a book recently about empathy and, and, and really, he actually helps scientists and physicians with understanding empathy and communicating with their patients. And he points out, he goes, I don't think we actually notice each other as much as we think we do. He said, how long does it take when you're standing with someone, when you're talking with something, someone before you actually notice the color of their eyes? I mean, there, there are people that we encounter, that we talk to, that we have an interaction with, and we walk away and we can't remember their faces. We, we can't remember their, their names. When you encounter people on a daily basis, are you moved like Paul was for them? Do you feel anything for them? Because as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, it changes the way you feel about the world around you. It changes the way that you see the world around you. Do you see the lostness around you? Do you consider it at all? If you are a Christ follower, you've been given this lens to see these people this way. When we were in Kenya just a few weeks ago, we're going to be talking about it in a couple of weeks. You're going to hear more about it. But we went to these homes with these social workers who oversee two, each of these social workers. I think there's, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but there's, there's a handful of them at, in each of these communities, these vast, large communities. And each of these social workers oversee 200 families apiece. And so we would walk through the community with these social workers and they'd be talking to people, we'd be waving and we happened to be on one day with a, a social worker named Sonny. This guy's awesome. I wanna take you all over there to meet him one day. He's an awesome guy. And we sat in this home of this woman named Helen and we sat down with her and uh, some of it was happening in English, some of it was happening in Swahili. And when it started sort of shifting to Swahili, uh, as we were sharing uh, the gospel uh, of Jesus with her, and then Sonny began to sort of have this exchange with her. And as he did, I sort of started just watching him, and I could see him. This is one woman out of 200 families that he connects with on a regular basis, and I could see him being physically moved, like he was coming to tears because he had so much compassion for this woman. He cared for her so much, and he wanted to see her come to faith in Jesus. And I was like, I was moved by how much he was moved. And I told him later, I said, man, you, you care so much. And he said, yes. And he said, this is one out of 200 families. Are we moved like this for the people around us? Do we care about their lostness? Paul saw the world differently. He felt 
differently about the idols of the world because his worldview was radically cross-centered. I thought about it. I almost did it today, but I knew it would tick you off, so I decided not to. But I almost put a cross right here in the middle of the room so that you guys would have to be looking around the cross all morning long at me. Is your worldview radically cross-centered? Because if it does, that's at the heart of changing the way that we see and the way that we feel. Constant awareness of the cross prepares us to lovingly engage the Athenians that we encounter in our lives. And when the time comes to speak, we have to be prepared to speak. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Are you prepared? Are you ready? It's not enough just to love them to Jesus. At a certain point, they're going to have to hear the name of Jesus. Paul says this in in Romans. How are they going to hear if no one proclaims the word? We have to be available and prepared in that moment to do so. And you say, Kevin, I can't preach. I'm not, that's, not my, that's not my thing. One writer, John Stott, says, we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul. And this is because we do not see like Paul. That was the order. He saw, he felt, he spoke, and it it all began with his eyes. And when Paul looked around Athens, he didn't just see the idolatry. He didn't just go, okay, take note of that, all right, cool. Oh, man, that's beautiful. Wow, that's awesome. I've always respected this architecture. No, he noticed it. He considered it. He thought, and he thought, and he thought until the fire of the Holy Spirit was kindled within him so much And he saw men and women created by God who exchanged the glory of God for these mortal images. And he had to do something about it. So do you feel for the people around you? Do you see the people around you? And are you prepared to speak? God will give you these opportunities if you just make yourself available the Holy Spirit will speak for you. I can not as a hammer, but lovingly, gently, but with boldness, presenting the truth of the gospel. That's how the church is going to change the world. That's why we believe the church is the only answer to saving the world. Don't you want to be among those who are counted as turning the world upside down. The word there for when, when they accused the, the, the followers of Jesus of turning the world upside down, the idea there is that it, they upset the world. We have a phrase we use, uh, like we upset the apple cart, right? You turn it upside down. There's a phrase in the South I was thinking about just the other day that we only use in the South. It's only a phrase that I've heard around here. I've never even considered it. It's like fixing to. That's just sort of a word that we use. This is another one. It was tumped over. They tumped over this world. They emptied it of its contents. They upset the apple cart because they were gently and boldly proclaiming the gospel 
Do we want to be a people that are complacent, that are willing to just sort of sit on the sidelines and we're just going to love, I'm really ministering to them. I'm just loving them, loving them, loving them. To what end? Do we want to be counted among the people who are turning the world upside down for Jesus? Will you pray with me? God, give us eyes to see. Help us to feel for the people around us and give us the boldness, the, the preparedness, the, the, the willingness, Lord, to speak truth when the time is right. And in those moments, Lord, may it be balanced with truth and love. May it be balanced with gentleness and a boldness because of because of who we believe in, God. May the cross of Jesus be central to our view of the world. And everything that we see, Lord, we see through the cross of Jesus. Give us an urgency. May a fire sort of well up within us like it did in Paul. so that the Holy Spirit pours forth as we speak. Lord, give us an obsession. Give us us a magnificent obsession, a passion for sharing the gospel of Jesus with the Athenians in our lives, Lord. All for you, God. All for you and the glory of your name. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna have a time to sort of respond to what we've heard, maybe what you've considered this morning. And just encourage you to consider the people in your lives, the Athenians in your lives. And as we do, we're gonna take communion together. I'm gonna invite our communion servers up to the front to get into place. We take communion uh, by dipping the, the bread into the cup, it's sort of different for some folks. We take the bread, the person will give it to you, and they'll say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And you take that bread, and they'll hold the cup, and you dip it into the cup, and they'll say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, central to our lives. And we encourage all believers, this is a, a, an open invitation, not from Cypher Christian Church, but from Jesus Christ himself, to remind us of how central he is to our lives. And as we do, maybe consider the impact, the ripple effects that that has in your lives. Would you stand? I did that wrong. You're not supposed to stand. This is awkward now. Everybody have a seat. Come on. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Let's consider the truth of the gospel in our lives here this morning as you come forward. As we sort of continue in this posture of worship, maybe you don't even know where to begin to engage the Athenians in your life. Maybe you're not really sure you're willing 
but maybe you're willing to pray about being willing. (laughs) That's where it starts. Maybe you want to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you for this time together. I pray that it was encouraging. I pray, Lord, that we are all challenged and stretched. Lord, move us beyond our complacency here today. Might we be an available people, a willing people. What could you do for the kingdom of God if we were just willing? If we saw the world through the cross of Jesus, what might you do through us if we were just willing? We thank you, Lord, for calling us into the work, for using us, each in our marketplaces, the people that we encounter, the friendships, the relationships. Lord, use us as we go here today. And give us eyes to see those opportunities to love people and to speak truth in their lives. For the kingdom for the glory, for the honor of Jesus' name. We pray these things. Amen. Amen. God bless you.